0: Good morning, guys. I am uh, excited to be here. God has taught me so much. Uh, As I had a simple concept, I wanted to get through to you guys today. uh, it just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And uh, but I'll I'll get us out in time, I promise. About me, here's what you guys need to know for why you should listen to me today. And it's the only really the credentials I have, is I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. I had a terminal illness when I was born. And when I was 15, through a heart transplant, God healed me. He took my stony heart and gave me a heart of flesh. And all you were born with that same terminal illness. And I hope you can say with me that you're someone that he has redeemed. Because that is the only credential I bring to you today, is it? I'm Paul Price. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its truth and the Holy Spirit that enlightens your word. I just pray today that you would help us to absorb all the truth you want us to absorb and to use your power to put it into our lives. Lord, it is my desire to rightly divide the word. If I err somehow in that, I pray that some Berean brothers would correct me and that Marty could clean it up next week and that you would uh, help us to forget it. But Lord, I've, I've searched. I, I want truth and you want truth. You are the truth. I pray that that would come through today. I pray the Holy Spirit would be welcome. He would move powerfully to convict the unsaved of their sin of your righteousness and the justice to come. Lord, pray that each of us, as we consider our walk, we would just listen to you. I don't want to invoke anybody's emotions. I want the Holy Spirit to convict and comfort. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I don't need a slide yet, but I want to see if we're are we going to get this thing going. or. All right. Oh, well, Fair enough. It works. now. Okay. Did you guys hear the uh, one about the two antennas that got married? The ceremony was terrible, but the reception was great. (laughs) I feel a little bit like uh, uh, Ralph Ruckel. Do you guys know Ralph Ruckel? That's what I feel like. Ralph Ruckel's the guy that if it wasn't Caleb Williams or it wasn't Spencer Radler, he's the guy that was going to go in. And I know you guys would like to have Marty or you'd like to have Jimmy. But today you got me. And so I, so I know how he feels. And uh, I'm not seminary trained. I'm not a great pulpiteer. And I tend to, uh, and all scriptures inspired by God, is given for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. I kind of focus too much on the righteous instruction, I'm going to call that application. There are guys in our church that understand the Bible and the doctrines of the Bible so much greater than me, but I err. If there's an error, I err toward application. So uh, with that, let's uh, quote a wise theologian if I can. Are are they they knowing when I'm clicking toward it, or how's this working? I don't even know which button's doing it. It's going to be funny. Okay, I definitely need this to figure this out. There you go, wise theologian. In one ditch is a focus just on information. The opposite ditch is a focus just on application. The middle of the road is the appropriate focus on exaltation. And I hope we can do that today. Does anybody know who that wise theologian is? I need to click a slide if I can't do it. Rocky Hales. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to want a response on this next one that I'm going to ask you guys about. Let's click, yeah, a very wise member who gave me some good counsel. Here's what they said. I don't really care to talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism. I didn't even know what those were until I was in my mid-30s. I think those debates can often border on vain discussions. I want to know, how's your devotional life? Did you have your quiet time? Are you memorizing and meditating on scripture? Have you been sharing the gospel with others? Are you becoming more like Christ? Can I have an amen on that? And does anybody know who that was? Let's show them. It was Linda Sykes, my wife, two weeks ago on the way to church. I err toward application. I'm not seminary trained. Uh, encouragement is not my strong suit. Uh, I, um, being in my family, I, the business world would call it not satisfied with the status quo, always con- wanting to improve. I call it, hey, we did really great on that, but you know what? We could have done a little bit better. Wouldn't you? I just feel sorry for my wife and kids growing up with me always. Oh, we could have done a little bit better. But I've noticed a pattern. And for you guys who don't know, I, I uh, spoke here and taught back in October. And the two topics were what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church. So I saw a pattern here. I'm starting to find out. I had to look at things that are wrong. So what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church. Today, it's what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me. Because I have found that, that one element that when I look at all the conflicts in my life that I've caused, there's conflicts I haven't caused, but when I look at the conflicts in my life that I've caused, when I've looked at the opportunities in life that I've missed because of me, when I look at the relationships that are hurt because of me, it all boils down to one thing, and my life would be so much better as I continue to get victory in this, and we'll talk about it today. Now, I'm not a in a secret club, okay? Two of my sons were in a fraternity, and I don't know, that do they have a secret handshake? I, I don't know. I don't know, do they? I don't know. But I went to a meeting about 35 or 40 years ago that I think almost everybody who was at that has almost died out or gone away, and kind of like the Knights of the Templar. So if you were at that meeting or at one of those meetings and you got a little lapel pin that told you something, it said this, I want us to go to the next slide. Who here knows what that is? There's not, golly, I'm the only, I got one back there, okay? Got two, got a few. This is what I need today, okay? And if I had lapel pens, I'd give them to everybody. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. That's uh, what I need for you guys, be patient, okay? Today we're going to talk about James, Let's, the quick review of James in the first three chapters. Uh, James is teaching uh, on... Uh, two ways of life, the way of the lost and the way of the saved. He contrasts. There are seven different contrasts in the first three chapters. We're going to be in chapter four. So the eighth contrast, he's, are you a doer of the word or a hearer of the word? Are you going to show partiality? Things like that he contrasts in the first three chapters. And four, we uh, let's go to the first slide. This is our verse for today. But he gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But the first word is but. And you can't really exegete the passage if you don't know what the but was about. So we've got to go back and I'm going to blast you through the first four or five verses of James chapter 4 real quickly. Because it's about conflict. And I don't know of a time in my life where there's been more conflict. I mean we've got the Russian... And Ukrainian conflict. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans conflict. We've got the conflict in people's hearts. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. Drug use is at an all-time high. Alcohol abuse is at an all-time high. Murders are at an all-time high. We are in a world of conflict, but that is not new. Let's look at James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So, the first level of conflict, they had conflicts amongst themselves. So, they had conflict with others. For those of you that are filling in the blanks, there'll be a, the blanks you can fill. The first blank is conflict with others. He tells you what it is, right? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder. And you envy and cannot obtain, and you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you ask not, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures, you adulteresses. I would have said adulterers, but he says adulteresses, adulteresses, because he's talking to Jews. And when the nation of Israel was not faithful to God, he called them adulteresses. So that's what it is. They were not faithful You know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world mistakes himself an enemy of God. I'm going to touch on verse 5. I'm not going to try to tell you about it because I'm confused. (laughs) On my New American Standard there, the word spirit is capitalized. All other references I looked at, the spirit was not capitalized. So it might be the Holy Spirit. It might be the spirit that God gave man. I don't know. And I couldn't get comfortable that I knew, so I won't be dogmatic about it. In any event, chapter verse five is about God is disappointed that this enemy of His is lusting after all these things. But we had the contrast. So there's conflicts with others, conflict within ourselves. My middle son, or my youngest son, excuse me, is uh, got his masters in counseling. And unless we have a spiritual renewal in our country. He is never going to lack for work. Right now, the uh, opioid epidemic and things, people are conflicted internally, and they want answers. So here, God says, you have conflict with others, you've got conflict within yourself, and you've got conflict with me. You are my enemy. You are the enemy of God. What a uh, scary thing. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And you guys need to think about that. That is a very, very, very scary thing, to be an enemy of God. If you're, what does this mean? I I pondered on this, guys. I struggled with this, and I hope you're struggling with it too, and there'll be more addressed later about your struggling with this passage. You're either friendship with the world, and God is your enemy, or you're a lover of God. There's no in-between. That's scary because the poorest person in this room today, if you went to a third world country, would seem worldly. So it's not being in the world. It's where is your heart and what is your desire and what do you want and what are you passionately thinking about as you're going to sleep every night? Is it these other things? Let's flip the the slide again to uh, 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, I memorize it different than this, so I should just say how I memorize it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. The lust of the flesh, what do I want to satisfy my feelings and my passions? The lust of the eyes, what do you have that I want to make me feel bigger and better than I ever did. And the boastful pride of life, why would I want any, you know, I want a bigger house than you. I want to go on nicer vacations. I want a bigger car than you do. I, I want all this stuff so that I can seem more important than you. I can have esteem. That is the boastful pride of life. That is a friend of the world. If that's what you're passionately chasing are these things. We have a choice of the world. We can either be of the world or of God, no, no, no option in the middle. Romans 1 says you are either going to worship the creator, the God who made it all, or the creature, which is you and mankind. So which camp are you? I want you to stop and think about that a minute. Are you worshiping the creator or are you worshiping what man wants? This is a very, very scary verse. It's self versus his ways. John ten ten. 10. I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. The thief comes to kill, still and destroy. So if you took someone who was not a believer at all and just taught them the tenets of Christ and they lived them, they would be more joyful than they are now. So just living like Christ is the better way to live. But everything in our society pulls us away from the tenets of Christ. And I don't think you can truly live his tenets unless you are a believer. But this is a, there's a big pile here. Are you a friend of the world, or are you a friend of God? Are you an enemy of God, or are you his friend? And I want you to stop and think right now. Which are you? Which are you? Let's go on to our passage of today, which is James 4, 6. Okay. But it gives more grace. This pile is big that you're a lover of the world, you're, you're, uh, you're chasing after its passions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's a big pile. This passage is dealing with the lost. That's my belief. But it applies so much to us, too. So if you've got this big pile, but he gives more grace. So even though the pile is big, God gives more grace. And that should be an exciting. If you today are being convicted that you're of the world and you're not a friend of God then that grace is what you want. And we have it right there on our wall that part of the salvation is by grace alone. And we're very, very familiar with what grace is. There's a two-word answer that's common to most of us. If you guys know the two-word answer for how to define grace, I want you to say it, okay? It is what? It is unmerited favor. That's how we frame grace. Grace and we there's three components to salvation and i think there's three components to grace and we focus so much on one component that i want to expand your thoughts of grace today not not all of you some of you are way ahead of me on this okay we were saved justification we are being saved sanctification we will be saved glorification so there are three elements of our salvation, just like there are three elements of grace. We are saved by grace. Grace is God's choice. He chose me. He gave me the power to believe in him. He set me up. I got all the grace I needed at the time I was saved for my saving grace. I want you guys to read in the top left-hand side of the bulletin uh, something from the West West... Westminster Confession of Faith. It's really about grace and free will. I'll read it. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. So saving grace is amazing. It is amazing. They took an enemy of God, me, an enemy of God, and God chose to enlighten me and allow me to become a friend of his. That is, I ought to write a song about that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was blind, but now I see. It is amazing. Let's go into Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Here's some verses about saving grace. I memorized a different version. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of result of works, so that no one may boast. God saved us. He did it all. We did nothing. It is by faith in him he gave us this gift. How about Romans 3, 24, the next one? We are justified by his grace as a gift and through that redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You can go to blank right now. Grace, it's God's inclination. He gives it to us freely. It is not de- deserved and it cannot be earned. That was saving grace. Saving grace. Why does God save us? It's tied up in the first catechism. Marty's talked to us a lot. Some of you guys will know that. Most of you should know it. The first catechism... The chief purpose of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God gets glory by taking one of his enemies and making him his friend. That is saving grace. Now, we're going to move to the second part of the verse because I want to expand the depth of grace. That's a a word come out of my mouth. There is no deeper thing than grace. I want to help us understand in a deeper way what grace is. So let's flip to the next slide. There's four words in the next verse. There's resist or oppose. There's pride. There's grace. There's humility. We're going to look at those four words today and try to gain a deeper understanding. Okay? Um, It's very important. I'm going to say it like this. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I really want you guys to walk away with this today. I'm going to say, God resists thee, and you're going to say proud, and he gives grace to it. I'm going to let you guys say humble. I want to do this three or four times because I want you walking out when you're at dinner and someone says, what are we talking about today? Well, God resists proud, gives grace to the humble. You'll know it, okay? So just help me out a little bit. We're we're feeling a little bit like there needs to be some energy. I'm not going to do calisthenics or anything, but I am going to do that. God resists the but gives grace to the God resists the but gives grace to the There you go. We're we'll liable to do that a few times. Okay, Flip to the next slide. Resist is a very interesting word. It's a military word, and it uh, means that to prepare an army for battle. So God sets his troops to do battle against the proud. God could do it with just his thought. But they're trying to. He's really trying to emphasize how much he hates pride. And he says, "I'm going to put a whole army to battle against the proud." He does not like pride; he hates pride. There are six things—yes, seven—that the Lord hates. I have a friend of mine, a deep friend of mine, who doesn't think God hates anything. He said, "Man, look at." Look at Proverbs chapter 6. It says there's seven things he hates. Does anybody know what the very first list on the one list is? Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Haughty is another word for pride. He doesn't want someone who looks with pride around the world. He hates people who look around the world with pride. You know what? We don't like them either. Uh, <laughs> we went and saw... Uh, Top Gun 2, The Maverick, or whatever you want to call it last night. And there's a guy, if you haven't seen it yet, his name's Hangman. He's good looking. He's strong looking. He plays darts perfectly. He plays pool perfectly. And he tells everybody about it all the time. And you guys know he's got to be the villain in the movie. So, so you see him. I don't want to be that guy. He is proud. And God tells us right here, he hates haughty eyes and pride. So I, seven months ago, started off with a sermon, uh, the problem with the world, what's wrong with the world. Then the next element was what's wrong with the church. Today's element is what's wrong with me, and that is what's wrong with me. Every conflict that I've caused in my life relates to pride. Every missed opportunity I've ever had in my life relates to pride. Every harmed relationship that I've caused relates to pride. If I can get victory, and I'm getting there, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. But if I can have victory over this pride that God wants me to have victory over, so many things in my life would fall into place. Why does God hate pride so much? Satan in Ezekiel 28. His heart, this is Satan's heart, was proud because of his beauty. Then it tells us in Isaiah 14 that he threw him to the earth and Satan's problem, here's a quote of Satan, I will make myself like the most high. Satan wanted to be like God. He didn't like being in heaven where he wasn't God. He wanted to be like the most high. Pride is making ourselves like the most high. You want to roll, rule your life. Campus Crusade used to have this bird book I called it. It's the blue book. And there's a little circle in the throne. And you have to decide. When you're lost, you're outside your life at all. So you become a believer. You have put God on the throne of your life. And now you're submitting to him. But then the next five minutes of your life, there's always a struggle between am I going to let God be in control or I'm going to be in control. There's that free will that starts to be a, a part. And I struggle with that. Am I going to, moment by moment, I'll just give you an example. It's, it really is, I mean this sincerely, rare that Linda and I argue. But, but you know, we, we do and we have. Uh, we, we, we have argued. There's two ways for it to go. I can be prideful and hold on to my point so hard that I destroy a level of our relationship. Or the second that pride hits me and I want to win the argument God will resist the probably He'll give grace to that. Lord, I'll I just, Linda, forgive me. We're going places I shouldn't even go. I shouldn't even say said that. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? But pride says, no, no, no. Win the argument at all costs. You're not submitting to God. Adam and Eve, what did Satan say to them? Eat of the apple and you will be like the most high. We want it's in our nature to rule our lives, but the abundant life that Jesus promised was a life submitting to him. He he was the creator, he knows what makes us happy, and we argue with him every moment of the day, trying to put ourselves on the throne and control our lives instead of let him controlling it. How about Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar walks out on his roof one day. He's looking over Babylon and he says, Look at all that I have done. The very instant that came out of his mouth, God gave him a mental illness. And it wasn't long until he's out in the field eating grass like an animal. There was a period of time where he was eating grass. Then God let him get back, come to his senses. And he praised God. He said, I know who God the Most High is now. And so God uh, brought his attention. I I hope he doesn't do that to you. Let's go to the next thing. Think about who was Jesus against. Who was Jesus against? Jesus was against the religiously proud. The ones who came to him and realized, man, I need you, he hung out with. He talked to the ones that said I've got it all figured out. He didn't have the time of day for them. So pride is a disrespectful disrespectful empty reliance on self and violates the ways of God. Guys, God is a balance of the truth. He made us fearfully and wonderfully So he has a great plan for our life. But in our natural state, we're depraved and desperately wicked. And when you forget that it's all him that got us where we're at, pride will enter your life. And it's when you consider yourself better than you truly are. That's what causes pride. Now, we've been talking about saving grace. We got all the grace we ever need. We're saved forever. But now I want to... uh, This is my word. I never had read a theology. theology. I call it sanctifying grace. Some of you guys may live this out, but I want you to expand your view of grace because we kind of get this view that grace is what gave me, God gave me to get saved. That is true. But if you look at like, it's like a a, a grace being a a garden that's planted, a, a piece of soil. We got grace to become Believers. But then he wants to have more grace coming up through the fruit of our lives that show others that he is it is God that works in you, Philippians 2.13. It is God that works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So sanctifying grace is still a gift from God, but we don't do anything to get sanctifying grace. We don't all we gotta do is acknowledge that we need it. That's what God resists the. Let's do it again. God resists the but gives grace to the... So all you got to do is ask him, submit to his heart, and your heart will align with his, and he will give you grace. It's what I call sanctifying grace. It's not only God's inclination or his disposition, which it is both of those, but it amplifies as an influence of power or an act of God that works to change our capacities for work, for suffering, and for obedience. There you go. There's my definition. Grace, sanctifying grace. Capacity would be saving grace. Sanctifying grace is the power and ability to live it out, to do his will. But you gotta, all you've got to do is not be proud and ask him for it, and he'll give you the power. Uh, There's no temptation to take you, but such is the common to man. God is faithful, and with that temptation will also offer route of escape that you might be able to bear it. So there's no reason for us to ever sin. God will always be the overcomer. But God wants to get glory through your life other ways by you not being proud, but knowing and admitting you need his grace. Let's show you a couple of verses of sanctifying grace. We looked at a couple of verses. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all suffering, a sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound to every good work. So sanctifying grace is not the past of my salvation. It's the present working of my sanctification. God wants to put his grace in my life so that I can do work. Grace is for good works. Go to the next one, please, guys this is Paul, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Grace is sufficient for suffering. Grace is sufficient for suffering. And guys, I think this is one of the biggest testimony tools we have today. Let's look over at the middle for the John Piper quote. It's long, but I'm going to read it. He talks about He doesn't call it sanctifying grace, that's my words, forgive me. Grace not only refers to God's character trait or disposition or inclination to treat people better than we deserve, but the word grace also refers to the action or the power or the influence or the force of this disposition, which produces real, practical outcomes in people's lives. That does not mean you have to give up that simple definition of undeserved favor. That's true. That's a good definition. It just means that the word also embraces the encouraging truth that his f- favor overflows in powerful, practical helpfulness from God in your daily life where you most need it. That help is also called, called grace because it's free and it's undeserved. God wants to work in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure so that he can draw men to him by the way you respond to his grace. Now, guys, here's a comment it is worth the prize of admission, if you can absorb it and get it done. We all know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I could quote him, except I'm nervous, so I probably missed one. We know that as God works in our life, our lives are more fruitful, more more aligned with Christ, so far from Christ, but more aligned with him. But what you don't realize, or what I want you to think on today, is the way you respond to suffering. The way you respond, respond to struggles is an equally good test of where you're at in the faith. When I talked about loving the world and being an enemy of God, guys, I'm a believer. God has redeemed me. There's no condemnation in me. But I had to think for a minute. Am I of the world? Or am I of God? If you did not struggle contemplating the verse is about being an enemy of God. You probably are. The struggle tells you, boy Lord, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm loving you and not the world. If that never crossed your mind, that tells you a lot. That tells you a lot. Because you struggle with wanting to understand and wanting to do and wanting to be led and wanting to follow. Now suffering, I'll start off with irritations and maybe sufferings may maybe catastrophes that is one way that God shows the world his grace is powerful. Uh, let me show you another verse. This is the way I was uh, exposed to this thought years ago. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may become defiled. Guys, this is a truth that you can either get better or you can get bitter. You can respond to God's grace or get bitter. I have seen this many, many times in people's lives. They either respond to, people's, to, to grace that God's pouring out of them. I'm talking believers. You either respond to God's grace or you grow bitter. Now, what I want to say is this is not the verse to support that. That root of, if I'm going to be right with what the word says, that root of bitterness is talking about in Deuteronomy 29. It was a warning against falling away. It has nothing against, about receiving grace or growing bitter. Now, I will tell you, in my life I have seen the true axiom that you'll either get better or better. You'll receive his grace or you'll get better. People who do not receive God's grace get better. Let me give you another verse that doesn't talk about receiving his grace. This is not on the this, this is here. Ephesians 4 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we are to push bitterness out of our life, though it shouldn't be supported by that verse, which is what led me on this trek 40, 50 years ago when I heard it. But I have lived 50 years of noticing, it. it is true, if you respond to God's grace, he will be powerful in your life if you do not respond to his grace you will grow bitter so why do we go through struggles so we can answer the phone so we uh, <laughs> why do we go through go through struggles to bring god glory by how he works in our lives okay let's read some reasons of why we go through struggles second corinthians 1 3 through 5 i'll read that to you Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves were comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You go through things in life that are cruddy to bring God glory. And so that you can minister to those who go through the same things. Guys, I've had some terrible things happen in my life. This isn't necessarily a terrible one. Uh, I'm on my ninth employer. Uh, Three of those times that I changed employers is because they let me go. They let me go. They said, we don't need you anymore. Some of you guys have lost your job. Hopefully most of you haven't. But for those that have lost their job, they will want to talk to me more than they'll want to talk to the guy who has never lost his job. They don't get the self-worth that's tied up in what you do for a living. So God allows you to go through some struggles, mostly to glorify him, but also so that you can comfort others. And you have to receive that and embrace it. Now let's talk about the ways the gospel gets communicated. One's happening right now, Romans 10, 13 through 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they, be, they call on him who have the, they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The main way I think God moves in someone's life is to hear someone talk about what God's doing in their life. This is the pulpit. 80 to 90% of you guys will never be in the pulpit. So how can you quote preach to others? It's word, it's verbal. If you don't know how to verbally share your faith. And there are many in this group who would if I asked for a raise of hands, which I'm not going to, but if I did, you would not be able to raise your hand if you don't know how to shave your to share your faith verbally. The key points how to help someone find me or find one of the other elders. We will personally train you. You need to be able to share your faith with others. If you cannot, you will not. But if you will not because you cannot, we can correct that. So God wants one way to uh, bring people into his kingdom is through the preaching from the pulpit, the preaching individually, but also it's through uh, suffering. It's been said it, it's, it, the wrong guys quoted by it. Preach the gospel, but use your words if necessary. Okay, I want to talk some a little bit about uh, some things. Let's just and, and once I name an element, I'm going to name a lot of them. I want you. I'm going to say, what does this person need? You're going to say God's grace. When I was young. A girl would break up with me, and I was heartbroken. I'm looking back at that, and I almost want to laugh, but it was real to me, and I was heartbroken. So what did I need? I needed what? God's grace. I know people who uh, are wanting companionship. They're a young adult or maybe a senior adult, I don't know, but they want to be married desperately, desperately. They want that. It hurts their heart that they're not married. So how can they handle that differently than the world so that God might be glorified? What do they need? They need, amen, you guys are getting the picture here. These are things, everything I'm bringing up here has happened in our church. Some want children. Linda and I wanted children for seven years before we had our first child. Six of those years, we were on infertility treatments. And uh, I think every lady, but particularly Linda, A lot of her self-worth was tied up in motherhood, wanting to be a mother. It was heartbreaking to her that she couldn't have a child. Carol and I were talking about this morning. Uh, The BSF group, over 30 years ago, prayed for us. And my 30-year-old son is there. But what did Linda need? She needed what? Because she needed to be able to handle it differently than all the secular ladies who were going through the same struggles. She needed to show God's strength through him giving her grace. It's not that she is strong. It's his grace is strong. How about the prodigal son? Right here in this church right now, we have a family, more than one family, but I know of one deeply. They have a prodigal that got off into drugs and it has a couple of felony charges against him right now. And guys, they don't know what to do. They can love them and show them a relationship, and they want to maintain that relationship. But to be able to handle that differently than the secular world, they need something. What do they need? They need... Amen. We have a widow here. How about loss of property? A widow here that the uh, house was flooded. That's a bummer. And she could react and be mad or get bitter. Or she could respond differently than all the other widows who are on a limited income and don't have a plethora of money. What did she need to react properly? She needed? Amen. How about this? A family member or a father in the ministry. This is no longer a minute. There's no one in active ministry at our church, so so don't don't go wild with your brain. But a family member of the active ministry acted incredibly inappropriately uh, to others to the point that he was uh, uh, called out for it. And you're in that family, and you were even abused by your father, who has been non-repentant and is not reconciled. The world would be on your side to be how sorrow they are about that, how sorrowful I feel about that. But be able to, to be able to rise above those secular people without solutions and show the world that God is big and he wants to receive glory, what does that young lady need? She needs what? And guys, I'm not making these up. This has all happened here. How about a cheating spouse who walks in after fifty years, 40, million, 40 something years of marriage, and said, I've been cheating on you, I don't love you, I want a divorce. That has happened very recently to someone I know. Now, they could get bitter or they could show the world a different way of behaving. That guy needs what he needs. Amen. This is God's sanctifying grace. How about, uh, oh God, here's the one that kills me. This is in our church. Can you imagine losing a child? an adult child, we've had some uh, folks whose kids have taken their life. I can't imagine. How about, uh, some of you guys know all these stories, so if you don't, a young young man, not quite a teenager yet, but has a terminal illness and dies. One of the most uh, deep ministers to me that's ever happened is a family here in our church that carried a term of a full baby and within a few days the baby died. They responded with grace. That's what they needed was God's Grace. And they displayed it. And I was encouraged by it. <clears throat> so we need God's grace to will to do of his good pleasure to bring glory to him. How? Let's go to the next slide. Share your thoughts and you'll affect someone's thoughts. Share your heart, you'll affect someone's heart. Share your life and you'll affect someone's life. Now, we can resist God's grace. His sanctifying grace. You have issues right now, either you personally or someone in your family, and you have a choice to make. Am I going to stay on the throne and try to be in control of my life? Or am I going to accept God's grace? He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So how do you get it? Let's go. Uh, you humbly ask. That's all you got to do. As soon as we admit that we don't have the power in ourself and cry out to God, we have it. We have it. There you go. Grace is the power, capacity, ability to do his will. Humility is recognizing and acknowledging my total dependence on the Lord and seeking his will for every decision. I have been under... I'm, I'm uh, 62. Uh, I have sat under some great teaching pastors. I mean great. If I threw out the names, it's three-fourths the crowd would have heard of every one of them. And they're great. They all have things that could be improved. But here's the one thing that I admire most about Marty. There's many things to admire about about Marty, but he is the most humble of any of them I've ever sat under. Marty is a humble man. And guys, as I reflect on our uh, staff elders, that's a trait that's there for all of them. Rocky's humble. Jimmy's humble. Jonathan's humble. Kicker's humble. We don't know how blessed we are to have humble leadership because that, that permeates through our church an attitude. I should have said Eric, too. He's not on staff anymore. So. <laughs> but, uh, I'm grateful to Marty and his humility. And uh, Okay, let's read a John MacArthur Carther quote here. Here's what he says. Humility is the treasure chest in what, which all other virtues are contained. Humility is the essence of a right spirit. And when a person comes to the point where they are humbled, they seek no longer fulfillment of the flesh. They seek no longer the driving pleasures of lust that pit them against the will of God. But the Spirit of God breaks that desire in their heart by sovereign grace, gives them a longing for what is right and a hunger for righteousness. Then they receive the grace of God. You have a choice to make when life will happen. If it were just a matter of God getting glory by the fact we were saved, the moment we were saved, we would be with him. But he wants us to go through life so those around us who do not have his grace can see us behave differently. Now, in order for you to behave differently... You have to react differently, so you have to get off the throne of your life, allow God to stay on the throne, and cry out to him in humility. God, this is a struggle for me. I want what you want more than I want what I want. And through that, God will get glory. Let's do one more uh, little uh, quote here by Charles uh, Spurgeon. The higher a man is in grace, the lower he will be in his own esteem. I'm going to tie the two sermons that are seven months apart together a little bit. That's pretty tricky to do. but uh, So it was what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church, and what's wrong with me. Now, there are problems, but the first symptom I said that the church had is it had lost its fear for the Lord. And now we're talking about God's grace and choosing to allow him to be in control and receiving that grace instead of growing bitter. And here's what it says in Proverbs 22:4: The reward for humility and fear of the Lord. There's a reward for humility and fear of the Lord, our riches, honor, and life. So God ties fear of the Lord and humility With two traits, he wants to align for us to have the abundant life that Christ promised. Now, there's an extension of humility that's gratefulness. I am a grateful guy, expressing sincere appreciation to God and others for the ways they've benefited my life. That's gratefulness. And I am grateful. For you guys sharpening me, I am grateful for God's grace. I'm grateful for heritage that has a humble leadership and God teaching us all. We're pretty much through for the day, but man, there are seven good admonitions following this verse that if you want to learn about being humble, we'll read them real quick. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. I want to come back to that one here in a second. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Quit doing what you're doing. My old mentor in the faith would say, admit it and quit it. And purify your heart, you double-minded. Get your heart set on God, not on your own throne. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be sorrowful for how you've offended the Creator. Then humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I had hoped that I had enough time to really expand those. I don't. But one just really touched my heart as I was preparing for this. And that's to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I thought that seems foreign, really. Now, to the Jews that were hearing this, hand, it seemed foreign. What had they read? They had read God who said, stay there, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. The priests go to the temple and they have this veil. They have a rope tied on the guy because when he goes to see the holy God, you know, if he doesn't do it right, they're going to pull him back out and he's going to be dead. They had this view of God and them being separate. Don't, don't get close to him. He's too, he is too holy and he is that holy. God is that holy that if we got in his presence, we would die. But here, once the new covenant got established, he, he says, draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, move right now. Holy Spirit, just move into our hearts. Convict us, those that are here that are friends of the world and your enemy. Lord, I pray for their mercy that today you would awaken them and show them that they did not struggle with that question. So they're your enemy, and there's only one way to not be your enemy. I pray you'd move in their heart today and tell them that. Lord, for those of us that are your friend, that you have redeemed, Lord, teach us to not be complainers and bitter like the rest of the world, but to look at the circumstances you put in our lives as ways to experience your grace and to show that life to others that you will draw them into yourself if we will obey you and put you as the leader of our life and let you minister through us through the example of your grace to others that we have an answer they do not have, and that is sincere and that is real. Lord, I pray you would move in our hearts, every person here, Lord, move in their heart today for whatever level of extra commitment you want to empower them to make with you right now. We ask that.